0: Welcome to Weird Studies, I'm J.F. Martel. Jeffrey J. Kreipel is convinced that mind is at least as fundamental a constituent of the universe as matter. A growing number of scientists reared in the dominant materialist dogma are coming around to this realization. According to Kreipel, many of these scientists change their worldview as a result of what Kreipel calls the flip, a mystical experience so profound and transformative that it amounts to a kind of conversion. The flip has whisked these scientists out of Professor Newton's billiard room and landed them in, well, there's no easy way to describe it. Mrs. Peacock's ballroom, maybe? Somewhere else, in any case. From one perspective, Kripal's new book, The Flip, Epiphanies of Mine and the Future of Knowledge, is an engaging catalogue of flip experiences collected from members of the scientific community. From another perspective, it's a kind of manifesto, a call to embrace a more expansive, human-centered vision of reality, a worldview that turns the universe into something like what the French philosopher Henry Bergson called a machine for making gods. We humans, Kreipel argues throughout the text, are not mere meat puppets dangling in a bright yet meaningless abyss. We are supernormal participants in the dance of being, co-creators of a cosmos that exceeds us only because we exceed ourselves. Jeff came on Weird Studies in January to talk about the challenge of the paranormal. In this second conversation with him, we delve into more metaphysical and political matters, trying to see what the flip might mean to us at this historical moment, and how it can subvert the reductive systems that continue to dominate the zeitgeist, be they materialist or religious in nature. But before we start, a quick pitch for your support. A couple of months ago, Phil and I marked the first anniversary of our podcast by starting a Patreon page. At the time of this recording, we have 77 patrons who are generously donating one to six or more dollars per month to Weird Studies. With this simple gesture, these listeners are making it a lot easier for us to do this thing we love to do. There are three tiers you can subscribe at. The readers and listeners tiers, at three and six dollars per month respectively, give you access to material that we're creating exclusively. For the Weird Studies community. We hope you'll check it out and consider becoming a patron yourself. And now, Jeffrey J. Kripal on his new book, The Flip, Epiphanies of Mind and the Future of Knowledge. We hope you enjoy this conversation. It was really interesting to us, and its chock full of ideas we'll definitely be exploring further in shows to come. book, you look at a lot of cases where, you know, a materialist got what you call flipped. Can you talk to us a little bit about what the flip means to you? How how would you define that move?
1: So I've been working with a lot of physicists and neuroscientists over the last decade and a half or so. They're all professional scientists, they're all working. And most of them are in the closet, by which I mean, they're completely convinced that consciousness is somehow fundamental to the material or natural world and that it cannot be explained as a product of material processes that it's it's sui generous it's its own thing it's like gravity you can't explain consciousness by reducing it to anything else it's irreducible so I've just really become fascinated with these professional scientists and how they think and how they work and live in the world and the book is really a kind of hymn to them and what i mean by the flip is inevitably what happens is someone is trained in medical school or you know in a physics lab or something and they're socialized into this really rigorous form of materialism in which everything again is explained in chemical or molecular or atomic or now subatomic terms, and they work with that worldview and just assume it to be true their whole lives until they have some life-changing moment. And that can be a near-death experience. That can be a psychedelic experience. That can be a spontaneous mystical experience at the touch of a charismatic individual, a teacher. And all of these things appear in the book. And when they have that experience, it literally flips their metaphysical world. They now are completely convinced that actually mind or consciousness is fundamental and material processes are somehow emanations or expressions of this deeper form of mind or consciousness. And that's what I call the flip. It's a flip because it literally flips their assumed relationships between mind and matter. They once assumed it was all matter and mind is simply a product of matter. And now they see or are convinced that mind is fundamental and matter is reducible to mind.
2: I got to say that resonated strongly with me. And it's worth noting, I mean, the examples that you're giving are of scientists. And that is entirely appropriate because science is sort of the guarantor of the materialist story. You know, scientists are, as it were, it's high priests, it's uh, the guardians uh, of this sacred tale. And so what you're talking about to some extent is apostasy or what happens when people suddenly realize that everything they thought was simply the, you know, divinely ordained order of the cosmos, they wouldn't put it that way, um, that that's wrong, or at least that everything is very much otherwise than they assumed it to be. But, you know, that happens to people who aren't scientists at all. It happened to me, you know, about 10 years ago when I started meditating and, you know, I started meditating for the usual, I don't know, limited and self-interested reasons like, wow, I'm really stressed out. And, you know, I hear that meditation is good for cooling you out. Uh, You know, there's no informed consent to, uh, (laughs) to, to meditation. Like you don't know where that is going to lead you. Right. And I had that kind of, um, a feeling it was not a kind of Saint Paul on the road to Damascus, blinding moment of insight, but more like a kind of a surge, a tidal surge, of something else overwhelming
0: my my little sandcastles of metaphysical certainty. So Freud calls it the oceanic feeling in his wonderful essay on transience. I think where he's... which, which he yeah. then says, he's like, I don't get it. But he says, pe- well, at least people say they feel this,
2: but <laughs> well, he
0: definitely acknowledges that it's real. He just says he's never had it. But yeah, you talk about a surge and it's, it just reminded me of that oceanic metaphor that Freud uses, mm. as opposed to this lightning strike of Paul on the way to uh, Damascus or whatever.
1: Well, well, Phil, of course, pretty much all of my previous books have been about non-scientists, right? They've been right. about right. historical figures or or religious figures. What this book focuses in really only on scientific figures from the medical or technological fields because i wanted to show definitively that the notion that a mystical experience is simply a misinterpretation by someone who isn't sufficiently trained in the science right. is just nonsense right it's just it's always been nonsense and it remains nonsense the other thing i wanted to show was that when these scientists and medical professionals flip and this was one of the real takeaways for the book for me, they realized that actually their science or medicine or technology worked just fine mm-hmm. within the new metaphysical commitments. They realized that materialism was never necessary. It was always an interpretation uh-huh. and that you don't need it. And it doesn't work mm. you know, when you ask these deeper questions. And this is, I think, what shocks them so and this is one of the fundamental features of the flip is it's so elegantly simple and it affirms the scientific and technological project when it's over. It's, yeah. it's not an abandonment of science and technology. Quite the contrary, it often leads to new scientific ideas or technological innovations.
2: But what your focus on scientists does do, and I think that this is a, an important move to make is it heads off at the past something that anybody who has uh, been flipped, the thing that you always hear, well, you only think that you experienced blah, 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 whatever it is you experienced, but actually, and you position a stratum of authority above that of the experiencer. It always reminds me of a line from Richard Pryor's stand-up. Richard Pryor had this gag about a guy being caught by his wife cheating on her. And he turns to her and says, who are you going to believe, me or your lion eyes? (laughs) That's the imposition of the layer of explanation over that of the flipped individual. Well, you think that, you know, when your heart stopped for four minutes, you think that you saw your ancestors, your dead loved ones. You think you saw a white light. But that's only because certain chemical reactions were happening in your brain or whatever. And by positioning your book almost, almost, but not entirely exclusively, because you do talk about humanists, the postmoderns a little bit in your symbols chapter, Uh, but by positioning it mostly in the field of science, you're able to say like, okay, well, here are people who are eminently well positioned to make exactly that argumentative move, who are saying, nope, you can't, you can't make that move. At least I can't, not for the experience that I had
1: here's the thing you can make that move before you're flipped but after you're flipped it's just silly exactly impossible and that's that's the problem of course because the flip isn't something you can sell on amazon or
2: (laughs) exactly right yeah
1: you can't you cannot operationalize or turn into an app on your iphone the flip it doesn't work that way and, mm-hmm. and therefore, it remains rare, fairly rare, although I don't think it's that rare. And these scientists remain in the closet because they're just they're scared of stepping out of the closet door and getting pummeled by their colleagues and their journals and every other form of disciplining in their fields.
2: Well, from this point of view, it occurred to me a number of times as I was reading the flip that... The flip is another way of saying, or a way of redescribing, or maybe reframing a much older concept in Western esotericism, uh, which is initiation. Yeah. Or flipped knowledge is what uh, esotericists might refer to as initiatory knowledge, which is, you know, a kind of knowledge that goes beyond merely propositional knowledge. Like, you can change your mind. Like, I can convince you of a certain gun control measure, and you then can read a an editorial, taking the contrary position and have your mind changed, That's not the kind of knowledge that pertains to initiatory experiences. And initiatory experiences are, if not rare, at least they're not universal. They don't belong to everybody. You can't make them happen. As you say, there's no app for that. They may not be terribly rare, but you can't predict how and when they're going to happen. And when they do, they mark a really bright line of before and after, I was once blind and now I see, you know, before, you know, you hear people using metaphors, like I was sleepwalking, or I was just sort of just accepting whatever I was told. And then this happened, whatever this is, maybe a psychedelic experience or an experience in meditation or a paranormal experience or what have you. Um, Then this happened, the bright line dividing then and now, because this is a feeling I've had for years is a feeling that once you're on the other side of that line, for a long time, it feels like it's just me. I don't see anyone else over here.
1: (laughs) You know, I think we're lonely for another reason, though, that's really worth teasing out. So what I'm calling the flip, the reason this is not Paul's trip to Damascus and the light on the road is, these people aren't converting to any particular religious worldview. Yeah. And what happens historically when people are flipped is th- some local religious community has the only language in town to even come close to what happened. And so the person thinks, you know, he saw Jesus or, you know, he was born again or she had some conversion to Buddhism or something. And so the local religious frame sucks up the flip and colonizes, as it were, and yeah. the flip becomes proof for the religion and the person becomes um, a true believer, as it were. So that's not what I'm talking about here.
0: I, I was just going to ask the question, actually, I've been waiting to ask it, is that what is the content of the experience, just for people who haven't read the book yet? Because most of the historical examples we'll find of something like a flip like within any particular tradition, will be pertaining to that tradition. So, we'll, there are tons of examples of Christian mystics seeing very specific entities that pertain to the Christian mythos. And you'll have the same thing happening in Buddhist countries or in Muslim countries. So, what is the content of the flip for someone who then does not convert? What do they experience exactly? What do they see?
1: Well, they see or they experience all sorts of things. I mean, they, right. They do there is no single flip, but all of these experiences of the flip come with this kind of Gnostic or noetic punch that mind or consciousness is more fundamental than matter or the body. And so that, that's the fundamental kind of punch. Now that can be expressed though, in a kind of formless mystical experience or a very elaborate, you know, trip to heaven and seeing valleys and, trees and glowing balls of light like even alexander saw in his near-death experience so that's why i wrote that whole chapter on symbol and sign because i want to be really clear in the book that just because someone has an elaborate visionary experience during a flip does not mean that everything she or he saw in the vision is literally true that's not how it works folks you know that's not that's not how religious visions work and I think what we do so easily is we fall into this literalism, you know i mean a j Iyer in the book has a near death experience which is far more bizarre than even Alexander's. and he he kind of interprets it literally, which sort of surprised me, you know so i'm well, he was a logical positivist, so
2: yeah
0: <laughs> well but why wouldn't he interpret it literally since that's what he experienced
1: because it involved things like beings in control of space and time who are, are kind of messing space and time up. You know, they need, they need to fix space and time. I mean, it's just so outrageous as a story or as a vision, which I'm sure he himself saw. So we then land in this space of, okay, how do we balance the sense that the person really saw something? I'm not denying what they saw, but how do we think about what they saw in relationship to every other flip or near-death experience in which the individual saw something completely different. I mean, either right. either people are going to completely different other lives and are falling into parallel universes that are structured in completely different ways, or the imagination is at work here, and it's acting as a, a mediating function between what is being experienced and what the person is actually seeing or hearing. and. You know, of course, I opt for the latter just because it makes more sense to me and it's simpler. Right. It might be wrong. I'm not terribly attached to it either. I mean, okay, if we want to live in parallel universes, okay, I I don't. I find that a bit unbelievable. Right. But but I think different people will land in different places on that.
0: Right. And it it is tricky when you start comparing visions and you're noticing that Rudolf Steiner paints the universe in this way and it looks very different from what Madame Blavatsky is saying and what uh, Gurdjieff is saying. So what's the common ground that all these particular manifestations or interpretations of this level of reality, what's the common ground that makes them all? And you locate that in the idea that consciousness is fundamental.
1: Yeah, and the, the metaphor I like, again, it's a metaphor, is that consciousness is a projector at the back of the movie theater, and it can throw any darn movie at once up there, and we can get sucked into any visionary or near-death or religion we want on the screen and think it's totally real, and, and we'll live inside it, and we're being projected as well, but at the end of the day, it's being projected by something more fundamental. And so the, I would say, you know, to be simplistic about it, the light is true. The colors and shapes on the screen are shapes and colors of the light. They're not fundamental. So, but again, that lands us in a, you know, we're get, we're getting into the weeds here because this is precisely where you go when you start to take these things seriously and they no longer become just functions of chemicals in the brain. Which, by the way, is a completely fake explanation. It it makes no sense.
0: Well, I don't see why it would apply to those experiences and not to any experience. (laughs) So it's like you can't can't have your cake and eat it too. So if there is reality to our normal physical experiences, then there needs to be some kind of reality to imaginal experience as well. It just seems, yeah.
1: Absolutely. But again, I think to go back to your lonely comment, I think the reason weird people like you or me feel lonely is because we don't buy the scientific materialistic worldview, but we also don't buy any of the specific religious worldviews that counter that. Yeah. And so we're kind of homeless on both sides.
2: Yeah, that's right. I'm going to suggest something like I always try to look on the bright side of things. And so, you know, we are talk about materialism as a story. And I always think, like, well, you know, stories always have like a productive aspect. So, what's the productive aspect of the materialist story from our point of view? I could tell you one thing is that when I started straying into weird territory, the fact that I had grown, you know, my dad was like a logical positivist philosopher. Uh, A.J. Ayer was like a name that I heard often when I was a little kid growing up because my dad wrote his dissertation on Ayer's philosophy. And so coming to my own sort of flip experience with a head full of reductive metaphysics meant at least that when I went on the other side, I was not easy pickings for a straightforward religious assimilation of that experience. Right. You know, materialism does do one thing for you, which is that when you land on the other side of that line – in a world that your education, everything you've ever been told is told you is impossible. You are more defenseless from one point of view, but also from another point of view,
1: you're more open. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I'm not an enemy of materialism. I think materialism gives us all sorts of things. I just get upset when it tries to do everything for us. Oh, yeah. No. That's, uh, again, I think that's really important. This and the flip is not an anti-science or anti-materialism book. You know, it, because you can flip from a materialist to a more idealist picture, you can also flip the other way, of course. And the whole metaphor of the flip presumes that these are two sides of the same coin. They very much are related. The universe really is material and the universe really is mental. And yeah. so you can flip back and forth between those perspectives and they're both correct. Yeah, But they're both inadequate. And I think that's kind of what we're pushing up against today with philosophy of mind and neuroscience. Particularly neuroscience teaches us so, so much about the brain, but has failed so spectacularly to give us a model of consciousness. Because there is no such model of consciousness. I don't, I don't think you can provide one.
0: This is the so-called hard problem, right? I mean, how many neurons do you have to connect before you suddenly have the spontaneous emergence of subjective experience. It doesn't make any sense.
1: No, it's, this is you know, what we call the combination problem. Right. And really, the, you know, Chalmers' notion of the hard problem, I understood what he meant by it, but it's really not true either because a hard problem presumes you can solve the problem.
0: Right, right.
1: I, I, just, I just don't think you can solve it with, with those particular tools. I just, I just don't.
0: I think Chalmers came around to that eventually, yeah. Yeah,
1: but, I, he did. I actually write about Chalmers in the book as well. He, he's moving more and more towards a kind of panpsychism mm-hmm. that I find really, really attractive.
0: Yeah, same here, yeah. So can, I, can we just go back? I know we were getting in the weeds, but I have, a, I have a question about the flip. So people experience this, and they'll experience it in different ways. So we recently interviewed Stuart Davis, the musician artist songwriter from uh colorado i know
1: Stewart.
0: yeah i yeah he told us all about it so so Stewart had an experience of a very specific entity experience these praying mantis entities that we discussed at length
1: i I heard all about it right
0: (laughs) so he's on the fence as to what is going on there he's obviously already sold being a buddhist and uh integral kind of guy he's already sold on consciousness is fundamental and he was before the praying mantis entities came to him so now he's wondering what these things are and it doesn't seem obvious to me whether he should go the route of uh well these are kind of symbolic manifestations of some kind of message from the ground, some kind of fiction that's telling me something about the nature of my life, of of my reality, of reality as such, etc. Or whether he should go in the direction of these are actual transdimensional beings, as crazy as that is, just based on his empirical kind of record what he's told us uh, it's not obvious why he should dismiss the possibility that there is some kind of material quasi-material or psychophysical reality to the content of his experiences or at least there's some aspect of these entities that
2: is self-existent exactly like they have some existence independence from him so presumably some place that they are quote unquote yeah. uh, when he's not around to talk to them
0: right so how do we make that decision when we're confronted with a, an extraordinary experience? Very carefully. Right.
1: You know, so this takes us out of the flip. Okay. This is a topic that I have written a lot about and I've thought a lot about and will write about in the future, but it is definitively not the subject of the flip. But, but let me just address it quickly. Where it does come into the flip is in the uh, Barbara Ehrenreich experience.
2: hmm Mm-hmm. Mm.
1: Erin Reich has a PhD in cell biology, and she's a very well-known social feminist, social critic, and when she was a teenager, she had this encounter on a skiing trip in Northern California with some kind of entity or form of cosmic mind that was inhabiting all the physical reality, including the teacups and toasters in a shop window in a little town. And... You know, she describes this something as definitely other than herself. And she concludes at the end of her book, she doesn't really conclude, but she suggests that it's some kind of species in the physical environment that is interacting with human beings in these predatory but ecstatic ways she does not land on a kind of flipped model of cosmic mind. She really lands on something much closer to what Stuart is talking about, although there's no visual component. You know, she doesn't see praying mantises or aliens. She She's basically raptured by this species that's entirely invisible in the physical environment. So, I take those experiences very seriously and I don't know. I myself go back and forth on experiences like Stuart, and I think he does too, on whether these are somehow aspects of ourselves that are essentially interacting with us as egos, we're sort of splitting into two dimensions here ourselves, or whether these are completely other species in this or us, some other dimension interacting with us. I, I don't know. I see reason and good sense on both sides. I call those biological gods as a way of of sort of Mm. capturing that phenomenon. And by that, I I mean biological, not in the sense of carbon-based creatures with blood and heartbeats and brains, but biological in the sense of some other form of living species that's probably not carbon-based, but that lives in the cosmos with us. Okay. Okay you know that that's a hypothesis guys that's not a conviction sure but I, I don't know how else to make sense of those experiences so for me that's just a constant possibility that hovers in my mental landscape and that occurs a lot you know in cases like stewards or, or barbara Ehrenreich's.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, but it so let me defend myself a bit you know in the flip i'm trying to talk to scientists and medical professionals and people in technology and you know the book is already weird enough and you can't get into everything you'll
0: no no yeah of course <laughs> yeah yeah of course no i wasn't asking it as a challenge i was just honestly curious about if you have any ideas that pertain to that and you do and thanks sure that so I, I was just curious to know how one decides like if someone's listening to this right now and then has a crazy experience Later today, I guess, in a sense, the most parsimonious line of interpretation would be to treat such experiences as symbolic and imaginal rather than as literal and quasi physical, because then we at least can apply to those experiences the same kind of line of thinking that we would apply as mystics to any experience, right? So, and that's the idea in Zen Buddhism the idea of makyo, which are. Things you'll encounter in meditation, but you don't pay any attention to them. You go back to the meditation because those things can detract from the full realization of the kind of pure consciousness or the sunyata, whatever Buddhism is trying to to make you realize.
2: At least as my teacher put it, like, they're suffering beings like ourselves.
0: Exactly. And so
2: they're no more, less, or more worthy of compassion than, you know, fellow human beings
0: and worthy neither of our enmity nor our allegiance. Right. They're, they're not the point. And yeah. I think that what you're doing in the flip is you're kind of talking about the point, right? That these experiences tend to come along with a realization of a kind of fundamental consciousness. And that's what matters in this book. Um, but but, yeah.
1: but in yeah. other books, I'm a terrible Zen Buddhist. I'm a terrible Zen practitioner because I think the makyo is significant. I couldn't agree more. Yeah, so I don't think we should be ignoring these things. But of course, I'm not a Buddhist, and I'm not a Buddhist teacher. I'm trying to understand what religion and the human being are. And so my goals are different, and so the methods are different. I struggle with this. I, I will say this, at the end of the day, and to get back to your your simplest point or the simplest answer, is that this is somehow us splitting up into different beings, like in a dream. At the end of the day, every single experience that we can talk about here, probably ever, is an experience of a human being. And so there are good reasons to suggest that all of these experiences are somehow expressions of whatever human nature is, or whatever human consciousness is. There might be real alterity here. There might be truly other species interacting with us, but we actually don't know that. All we really know is that human beings report these experiences, and therefore, they're describing something about their own consciousness and can't really say for sure about the consciousness of the mantis or the alien or the god or whatever it might be Mm -hmm. so i you know that's kind of my fallback point but again i'm not certain about it i do know for certain that human consciousness can split into multiple personalities into multiple presences and multiple beings and that happens we can do that so I know that's the case. I don't know whether these particular experiences are examples of it or not, but I know that the human being can in fact do that. what we're talking about is whether there are different types of cultural fictions and whether all cultural fictions are equal and I replied that no they're not at all equal. they're of course very minor silly ones and then there are very serious ones and I think the way we could distinguish the truly profound fictions from the lesser superficial ones is how difficult it is to see through a particular fiction, I'd suggest that you know materialism or the philosophical belief that there's only matter and that we're essentially just meat machines is the reigning profound fiction of Western society and it's very difficult if not almost impossible to think through. And uh, that's why I began the book with this little epigraph from Arthur Miller that reads, an era can be considered over when its basic illusions have been exhausted. Uh, Certainly our own illusions around materialism have not been exhausted, but the book is about these moments in which individual scientists and medical professionals do in fact see through the illusion. And so I take those moments very seriously and and as, you know, maybe a barometer check or a, a read of where the culture might be going if we take those up.
0: Right. In a sense, it's a question of affordances, right? Like in order to buy into materialism, there's a lot of things you just can't think about anymore, that are just part of life, like consciousness. And so it requires us to omit a lot. So it, it's as a fiction, it has less affordances than, say, a particular mythos that at least acknowledges the existence of all these so-called secondary qualities and the whole stratum of consciousness and all that. At least those things are integrated into the overall theory, which makes the fiction more powerful and gives it more explanatory power. Maybe not ex- physically explanatory, but at least in terms of making sense of life. Do you know what I mean?
1: Yeah. I, you know, because I'm a historian of religions, I always think of these things through the framework of religion. And what strikes me so much about so much religious discourse in the culture now, particularly around Christianity, is there's just this assumption that the Bible is true or that the Bible should be authoritative in some way and that's the reigning fiction of course that is never ever questioned when we talk about christianity or certainly when christians talk about christianity but of course that's that's a very very blatant assumption there's absolutely no reason those particular texts written in hebrew and greek should be privileged you know beyond all other texts written in every other language and every other religion of course not only does not privilege those texts, but knows or cares nothing about them. So, I mean, it's just obvious to me, as someone who compares religion, that, you know, entire civilizations are built up on, essentially, fictions that might, in fact, be based on, you know, real experiences, but then get spun out into scriptural canons and institutions and forms of authority until you get something like a world religion or or today a nation state, but they're built on tissue. Right. One can easily see through with enough training, I suppose. I I, I shouldn't say that because obviously most people can't see through them. And, you know, I walk around in the world just kind of stunned that I just feel so alone.
2: Yeah.
1: I know I'm not alone. I know lots of people see through the fictions that go on every day in the media and the public discourse, but uh, you know, you still feel alone.
2: I sometimes wonder if the great motivation behind almost all intellectual work in the, I don't know, the sphere of the esoteric or what I like to call the weirdest sphere, uh, a neologism that works because I don't have a better word for it um or just you know esoteric writing a lot of it is just to try and feel a little bit less alone
1: i think Um, so yeah it's
2: it's like i'm gonna throw this out there and if somebody says oh yeah you know if there's that moment of recognition like that's something
1: yeah i was just visiting this astonishing couple in a little town near me here in texas and they had read some of my work and were, were using it in their own lives and they had me over for lunch and i walked into their house, and it was just this incredible labyrinth of books and icons on every conceivable esoteric subject, and you know they were looking to me for advice, and they're living in this culture that is just so robustly not any of that, and would in fact give considerable pushback, and they, they were asking me for advice, and the, the one thing I tried to say to them is, please, please, please don't confuse lots of people coming to your community with truth. You know, mm. we, we we naively think that the bigger a culture or religious tradition is, and the older it is, the more true it is. Because of course it must be more true, more people have signed on. But I think people who study esoteric movements and esoteric figures long enough start to realize that actually the opposite is likely the case, that the closer one gets to truth or reality, the less one fits into any culture or religious tradition. Right. And so actually being small and even persecuted is probably a better sign of being closer to the truth than being large and successful, which of course, every successful religion or culture really is a function of how many other cultures and communities they beat up. Mm-hmm. And and just smashed into oblivion it's disturbing to me on some level how we do that
0: that makes me think of uh, are you familiar with henry bergson's book uh, the two sources of morality and religion i love that book Yeah. yeah i think you refer to it in some of your work so bergson posits two forms of religion the mystical and the I can't remember what he calls the other one. It basically means something like fossilized religions. I read it in French. I'm trying to remember the terms and translate them. But So there's a religion that's alive and that's cosmic and that's properly, I guess, in a sense, kind of oriented on an imminent axis. And it's taking in the cosmos into itself and, and it's growing and it's effervescent and it's powerful and it's expansive. Just to cite some examples, we could look at the birth of Christianity you know, you look at St. Paul and the early Christians. They certainly felt alone in the Roman Empire. And they were bringing into the world ideas that were, at the time, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but pretty new and pretty revolutionary ideas about the self and the place of the human and all that. And then quickly it becomes fossilized and imperial and official and then it starts to stagnate, or tries starts to clamp down on truth, or tries to hold truth as opposed to living it, or kind of realizing it in the world. And you could find this, you could cite, you know, Buddhism as another example, uh, of Islam, the story of Muhammad. Do you think that's a fair statement that I'm making, or do you would you disagree with that? Would you say that religion's bad from the start?
1: I would either agree or disagree. I mean, that's a very Protestant model of yeah Development that you know you start out with this glorious golden age and then once the catholics get on board you're all downhill you know it's not that it's entirely wrong i mean the early christian movement was essentially a cult the way most people would understand that today The, the romans just thought that these people were crazy you know they were worshiping somebody that died on the electric chair of the time and they were holding all these crazy ideas and even St. Paul said he believed this because it was so outrageous to the Roman or to the public mind and then of course it does get aligned with the state through Constantine and and the whole Roman Empire and, and it becomes essentially equivalent to the Roman Empire and does then begin to persecute other smaller movements that's sort of the bad side. The good side is that, of course, it does carry into the present something of that original lava or molten lava, to use the Bergsonian metaphor. The metaphor he actually used wasn't just fossilized, that there was this original lava, the volcano going off, and then it, it eventually hardens into these religious forms. Right. But the later religious forms still carry something of the original explosion. So. From a tradition's perspective, you can always argue, and I think rightly so, that for all of its faults, the orthodox tradition still carries and preserves something of the original revelation or explosion. But you can also argue that much has been lost, and that comes at a great cost, including intolerance of other revelations and other flips to you to invoke the book again here. You know, the truth is, is that human beings are not obedient and religious experiences, mystical experiences uh, do not behave. They don't follow our cultural scripts. They're always doing things outside the script. And that's what makes them so darn creative and so darn scary to those who are in power or who are trying to control or preserve a tradition. so I Or just scary,
2: period. Like, for whatever reason, I'm thinking of the great act of disobedience of the 20th century, to me, is the invention of the atomic bomb. Yeah. You know, Promethean is the word that's always attached to that. You know, Prometheus is this archetype of the human. I mean, for all that he's a god, not actually a human, he's like this archetype of the human, of that spark in human beings that disobeys, that doesn't do what it's told, that is always after almost perversely what it doesn't have and can envision that and bring that into being. And yet at the same time, it's not just that it's scary to those in power. It can just be scary. That Promethean action of bringing the bomb into existence is awe-inspiring and deeply frightening at the same time.
1: I mean, that whole thing still terrifies me. I I would argue that the people who created the bomb, though, were actually, were obeying, and that's what was wrong.
0: Right. Right? I mean... Well, they were obeying uh, a kind of... um, A a
1: nation state. A nation.
0: Moloch. (laughs) They
1: were buying into an us versus them mentality in a whole military complex, and... You know, and you can understand why they did that, given the horrors of World War II. It's just that we can see now, looking back, the potential horror that they bestowed on us. I mean, we could essentially melt our children tomorrow right. with us and every other living creature, you know, in the Northern Hemisphere within a day. That's not a, a future I want to even think about. It's, it's, it's truly horrific.
0: Do you think that archetypally speaking that the bomb was an inevitable or quasi inevitable consequence of materialism?
1: I don't know. You know, that's a really good question. I certainly don't address that in the book. I No. <laughs> I haven't thought that through. I
0: Okay, let me rephrase the question. Do you think like, an all-encompassing faith in materialism has moral consequences for the planet and for the, for the yeah, human species? Yes, of
1: course. I think the other great fiction of our era is that more science and more technology are always good. Right. And I think that's just nonsense. I think that a lot of science and technology actually makes our lives immeasurably worse and kills and destroys, and that needs to be said. That doesn't mean I'm against science or technology or that we should stop doing it. It's just that this notion that all science and all technology are always good is just patently false, and it needs to be called out. It's not that I'm against materialist forms of thinking, guys. I think there's all kinds of reasons to think in materialist fashion. I mean, I've been to the doctor enough and have worked with enough medications to be a huge fan of materialism. Mm. I don't want to go back. On the other hand, where I think we make the mistake, as I tried to say in the book, it's not that materialism is wrong. It's that it's half right. Right. And that it erases whole dimensions of reality that it cannot, in principle, explain. And the big one there, of course, is us as conscious subjects or persons. Materialism cannot explain us. And so it says ridiculous things like we don't exist or there is no such thing as consciousness or consciousness is only an epiphenomenon of brain processes for which it doesn't have the slightest evidence. So that, right. that's where I think materialism just gets wacky. As a humble metaphysical approach to particular problems, it's wonderful. As an overarching world war. It's quite awful. It's quite silly.
2: I'm trying unsuccessfully to find the title of a book that I was reading about the other day. And it was somebody who's a sort of a historian of technology and intellectual history, who argues that the, I don't know, the basic trajectory of Western thought in the last couple of hundred years has been to exchange meaning for power. And that I thought was interesting is, again, this allows us to kind of take a step out of thinking of um, necessarily in terms of isms and thinking that isms, for example, materialism, you know, wears the black hat and trying to think of maybe, well, getting back to what we were talking about before, stories, you know, what are the stories that generate the things that we see in the world around us, the ills and benefits and good things as well. Okay. So I made reference to Prometheus and talking about the bomb, but I was thinking about this, just this idea of trading meaning for power, my first thought is to think of Faust. But then it occurs to me, no, you know, a really good archetypal figure is Alberich from Richard Wagner's Ring Cycle. I don't assume that you necessarily know about that. So, like, very briefly, the whole story, it's this tetralogy of operas that Richard Wagner wrote over a period of 25 years from about 1850 to 1876, And it tells the story of the entire course of the world from birth to death. And it's based on Norse mythology, but Wagner remixed it and added many things of of his own. And one of the basic ideas that he's playing with is the villain of the piece. One of the few characters that runs through all four operas from the beginning of the world to the end is this character named Albrecht. And Albrecht is a Nibelung, which is kind of like a dwarf And when we meet him at the beginning of this tetralogy, he's lovesick for these uh, water nymphs, these Rhine maidens who are guarding the gold of the Rhine. That's their job. They guard the gold of the Rhine, and the gold of the Rhine is kind of this beautiful thing on its own. It's unshaped. It's a natural phenomenon. And the Rhine maidens just love it for its beauty, not for what it can do for them, not what they can make out of it. And Albrecht decides to steal the gold, and with it, he can fashion a ring. And it's a ring of power, just like Sauron's ring in The Lord of the Rings. And obviously Tolkien was heavily influenced by Wagner, although he liked to pretend he wasn't. Uh, but Alberich is really interesting. At the beginning, he's chasing these Rhinemades around and they sort of taunt him and make fun of him and they break his heart. And he learns kind of in passing that he can claim the Rheingold that they guard for himself if he forswears love. And the trade he makes is love for power. And so he renounces love and the Rhinemaidens are completely unconcerned because they don't think that any creature – they're like, well, if there's one thing that all creatures want, it's love. So no creature will ever claim the gold because no creature can ever force wear love. But that's exactly what Albrecht does. And in so doing, he claims almost unlimited power. That's a kind of an interesting archetype for something that we're talking about and love and meaning in some way that I'm not quite intellectualizing off the top of my head do seem to be, to be sort of connected in some
1: way. Right. And of course that's how science works or how it began, you know, from Galileo on was an agreement that we were essentially going to talk about mechanisms that we could test and empirically observe and then test again and we were not going to talk about things we couldn't test like the subject or the soul right it was this turn outwards to study things that can be manipulated toward practical ends which is your power and a systematic looking away from the soul or from what you're calling meaning Mm mm-hmm and i think that's exactly right i think that's what science and technology are are really effective tools to create more and more sophisticated forms of power to manipulate the physical world but they proceed precisely by refusing to ask questions of meaning or why we're doing that or who's doing it or what is this form of consciousness doing the science you know who are we none of those questions can be asked in principle
0: there's a deep irony that we've talked about on this show before in this modernist turn. In trying to subtract ourselves from the order of nature completely, we get to take on a role of power over nature, right? We get to try to control. And materialism has tended to try to eliminate any sort of human exceptionalism, right? Humans are not exceptional. So basically, even our own bodies become part of the order of nature that's measured. And everything that we can't measure, as you just said, is basically just omitted or, or ignored or dismissed. But of course, the whole project seems to require at least a recognition that humans are exceptional enough to do this to begin with, to measure the world as such. And how can you explain the exceptional capacity of the human mind to develop and to implement materialism without saying that there's something unique and special about the human? How could the human just evolve out of just the random processes that materialism insists on and randomly gain the ability to develop modern mathematics do you, do you understand what I'm saying? The weird irony in there is that it's still maintaining a kind of human exceptionalism.
1: Yeah, it doesn't add up.
0: Yeah, it's weird.
1: Yeah. You know, this, one of the things I try to articulate in the book is that science itself is human. Science right. is an expression of human beings. And so the ultimate ground and explanation for all of science is human consciousness, and if we're not going to address that then we're never going to understand what science is we might be able to make refrigerators and cell phones but we're not going to have a clue how we're doing that or why we're doing it.
2: wondering if we can shift topics slightly there's a quote that you put at the head of the fifth chapter that really struck my attention and i wanted to kind of talk a little bit about it this is from sam chris village atheists village idiots from uh the feisty rag the baffler i uh, that's its political leaning feisty right yeah
0: <laughs> the feisty party
2: exactly mm. Uh, So this is the quote. Once, the cosmos was etched into concentric spheres with God in the middle, a macrocosmic representation of feudalism. Now, geneticists like Dawkins argue that what we see as animal life is really just a capitalist free market in genetic code. Whenever you hear a rapturous defense of the natural world, you should be on your guard. This is class power talking, and it's trying to kill you. I really yeah. like that. I mean, for one thing, it links up with something we've been talking about throughout this conversation, which is stories that we tell that have all kinds of power to structure the way we think, and also they kind of tell on us. They tell tales about like how we are organizing our knowledge, organizing our understanding. And what I take Sam Chris's point to be, at least in part, is pointing out the way that certain scientific ways of Viewing the Cosmos also are doing all kinds of largely unexamined work on behalf of contemporary ideas about the free market. And, you know, the idea of class power is implicated in all this. We're recording this. This is probably going to be released in a few weeks, but at the time that we're recording this, this is like a day or two after the college admissions cheating scandal. Have you been keeping up with that at all, Jeff?
1: Just a little, you know, not much.
2: Yeah. I've been finding it kind of interesting. I mean, there's a lot of, uh, as with everything else that hits the news, uh, a lot of smoke, a lot of chaff, a lot of distraction. But one thing that I think really kind of comes through loud and clear is like certainly what a lot of people are taking from this story is that it has an awful lot to do with class and the academy, the university and university degrees as a product for which people are willing to pay crazy amounts of money to ensure that their kids will be able to get access to that or be able to get access to the version of that product that they feel is the most high value, the most high status. Um, I don't know if I exactly have a point here except to say that that, you know, I'm sort of thinking about the way the Academy itself is complicit in a lot of ways with – overt and covert class attitudes in the United States at this particular historical moment. And, you know, in as much as the flip is about knowledge, and in this last chapter, thinking about the political implications of different forms of knowledge, political implications of flipped knowledge. um, I don't know. I thought I would mention it at least and see if we could do anything with it. I don't know if we can. I don't know if there's anywhere to go with that.
1: Well, I think the university, of course is both complicit and resistant to these kinds of moves. I mean, it is significant that these uber wealthy people had to cheat to get through the mechanisms to get their kids into college or university, right? Mm. Because those mechanisms are set up to prevent a kind of pure classism. They're set up to try to create some degree of diversity in their communities. And of course, they never do that in a... Or, or sufficient way, but certainly the effort is there. And so I do think it's significant that this really is a story about cheating, cheating the system put into place to prevent exactly this kind of classes. You know, so I I came from a lower middle-class farming community in the Midwest, and it's not my fault that my own culture or religion finally made no sense to me. Mm. It, it's not my fault that I saw through this very early on and fell into the only profession in my culture that would have me, Mm. which is the academy. Mm -hmm. So I feel a great deal of affection for the academy. And I think educated people are in a very difficult moral position that they see through things that people who are not educated generally don't. Does, does that make us bad, or do we just know more? This goes back to the Adam and Eve story. What, why do we keep demonizing knowledge? Why do we keep persecuting those who know? I'm sympathetic to rooting out the classisms in our higher education system, but I am not sympathetic to equating knowledge with classism. I mean, that kind of Foucauldian move of, Conflating power and knowledge, I think, is at the root of a lot of our problems. Yeah. And not our solutions. And, you know, and why do we value knowledge in places like building jet planes in the military, but we don't value knowledge in people who study history or philosophy or or music? Why do we not think twice about the authority of the physicist or the medical doctor? but we want to demonize and demean the humanist and the historian. You know, so I, this is why I'm a Gnostic, you know, I I can't deny that I know. It's not my fault that people who are not educated don't know. Uh, And I wish they did. I wish in a perfect world everyone could receive the education I did and was capable of of uh, absorbing it. And so I think forms of knowledge lead naturally to forms of elitism that are inevitable, Um, but again, are not the fault of the knowers.
2: You just said Gnostic, that this is why you're a Gnostic, and uh, this is very interesting to me because I think that there's obviously a strong Gnostic streak that runs through your writings and that I think is embedded, in, at least in the conversation that we've been having about the flip as a kind of initiatory knowledge, something that you were saying before. It's not universal knowledge. There's never going to be an academy of flip studies. There's a, it's never going to be a curriculum. It's never going to be something on a standardized test, and it's a kind of knowledge that does imp- pose this weird kind of gnostic burden as you say you're not guilty of knowing you just know it's not your fault that you know and it's not your fault that you know and that there's a line separating this sort of like on the other side of the flip
1: and the near side of the flip it's not my fault that my own culture doesn't work and doesn't make sense when you begin to think about it yeah if that's a defense of elitism then it's a defense of elitism i but again why do we privilege and glorify forms of elitism everywhere else but we don't in when it comes to knowledge and higher education i just find that baffling
0: let's talk a little bit about the, the political implications of the flip because i'm curious i think we are exactly i just want to ask a kind of direct question about it um I guess it's two questions. First of all, I guess straight up, what are the political implications of this sort of gnosis? Because you do in the last chapter equate intellectual work, academic work with a kind of it's a kind of version of the flip. The idea of uh, distanciation and reflexivity are ways of enacting the flip by being able to look at things from a more objective point of view of, of self critique and self reflexivity. We actually engage with a kind of gnosis. So what are the political ramifications of that? And how do we, I guess this is a totally different, probably unanswerable question, but how do we implement processes that will encourage more and more people to experience something like what you call the flip? You know, how, how do we implement this socially?
1: Well, you know, it sounds self-serving, but the short answer is the humanities. What I say in chapter five is that I do not want to be misheard as saying that flipped experiences automatically lead to moral, just social structures and compassionate behaviors. They do not. People who are flipped also do awful things. And religious systems are not entirely benevolent systems. And they're based on flipped experiences. So we cannot equate flips with some kind of automatic moral renewal. So the real answer for me is, frankly, the humanities. And by that, I mean learning how to be suspicious of our own deepest convictions and beliefs, learning how to step out of ourselves and to take other worlds, other cultures, other peoples, other communities seriously, but not as absolute truth either, learning to question everything. And so I see the humanities as one immense instantiation of flip forms of knowledge that has become institutionalized And can be effectively taught to large, large numbers of people, some of whom will experience mild or robust forms of the flip while engaged in that study, many of whom won't, of course. But whether they experience it or not, it'll still have this cultural effect of a body of society or a community that is capable of being self-critical and not projecting its own values onto other communities and to other other places and times. You know, that's my simplistic answer. And I recognize that's utopian. I recognize that's not going to happen in the near future. But again, that's not what the book is about. It's not about a practical how-to in the next five years. It's about where I hope we are in, you know, a century or two centuries. And clearly, if you've flipped and recognize that consciousness is fundamental and all of our social, national, and religious identities are built upon that base or foundation, then you will privilege our humanity and not our national or religious or cultural identity. And that will lead, I think, automatically to all kinds of public policies and behaviors that are precisely the opposite of what you're seeing now.
0: Do you think the flip makes people more progressive more liberal
1: I think overall it will I don't think it will in every case as I say in the book I do think there's something innately liberal about education and particularly the humanities but I don't think you can say that for every single human being or case and I think there's a lot in conservative intellectuals I really admire I don't think it's just some kind of mechanical automatic liberalism, you know, that does become a kind of political correctness that is, I think really restricting and dangerous. And I think we've seen its fruits in the last election. I think that's part of the problem is we've abandoned any real criticism of our criticisms. Yeah. Strongly agree. You know, I, I think it's clear from our conversation. This was a great conversation, by the way.
2: Thank yeah, you. I thought so too. Yeah. It was fun.
1: I I think it's a great conversation because it, it expresses on for all three of us that these kinds of questions are cries of the heart, and they came they come out of the depths of our own lives and our own experiences and our own communities. You know, mm-hmm. I think too often intellectuals are framed as some kind of heartless cognitive computers in some ivory tower that don't care and I just again it's just flat out wrong the intellectuals I work with and interact with are all people like you uh, or me we came out of families we came out of cultures that we just ran into in a kind of you know like running into a wall and we're just doing our best to try to put the pieces back together and, and reimagine some better future not just for us, but hopefully for everyone. And I think that's another feature of the humanities, it tries to expand this notion of us into, into everyone, ideally. And, and that again has profound political consequences.
0: Consider subscribing to Weird Studies on iTunes, Stitcher or another podcast service. You can also follow us on Twitter or support us on Patreon. Music for the podcast is composed and performed by Pierre-Yves Martel. Thank you for listening.